Hi everyone and welcome back to Random Film. I'm doing something a little bit different today. I'm going to be going through some hints and tips and some revision tidbits ready for the GCSE Film Studies Paper 1, which happens on Friday the 20th of May. Um, I thought it would be best to do this now, given we're two weeks out from the exam and it gives everyone time to kind of give this a listen, uh, sort of go over stuff and all that kind of uh, usual, usual stuff. Um, the first thing I thought I'd do, just to mention, is I've not been asked by the exam board to do this, nor have the exam board given this the kind of like seal of approval. So please don't think this is, you know, word for word what's going to happen or anything like that. This is mainly stuff that I've gone through with my class and basically, yeah, hints and tips at the end of the day. Um, so to very quickly go through the advanced information that was sent out by Educast, by the exam board. So we're looking, obviously, at component one, which is the key developments in US film. And what we know from the advanced information is that section A, which is the US film comparative study, is going to look at key elements of film form and genre. Now, we have much more information for paper two, for component two. I'm going to do a separate podcast for that one and release that ahead of paper two. The reason why we've got less information here, only section A, is because um, the subject officer, Rebecca Ellis, very finally put on the Facebook group that if we if they were to reveal what section B and what section C would look like, so the timeline and the specialist writing, it would kind of give away the question at that point. So they could only really give us advanced information for section A. So that is specifically looking at um, the US film comparative study. Now, apologies to those who are listening who aren't my students or who study the same films that we do, but I am, unfortunately for you, going to skew this in the direction of obviously my students and the films that we study. So um, to kind of give you a bit of an overview on that, we look at Rebel Without a Cause, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and then Whiplash. Um, so I'm going to be specifically talking about them. Now, I've kind of come up with a different sort of, I suppose it's a type of knowledge organiser. It's more like an answer bank where... I sort of broke apart the advanced notice and thought, what out of the different elements could our students be asked? And ultimately, the way that I kind of took it is that if the rebel question, for example, uh, was elements of film form, that could be cinematography, it could be sound, it could be editing, it could be mise-en-scene. If it was genre, it's more than likely going to be genre conventions. So I tried to, as much as possible, give my students a broad overview of all the different possible questions and answers that we could get. So all I'm going to do here is just going to read through all the different ones that I came up with, the kind of hints and tips of you tackling those questions, seeing where we get, and then I'm going to go into structures a little bit for answers and things like that. So to start off then with Rebel, um, the first thing with elements of film form, it could be, it could be a cinematography question. If it's a cinematography question, I think it's more than likely going to follow the following format, which is identify one example of cinematography from your chosen film, which is either one mark or two marks. Uh, then briefly explain what this example typically suggests, which give you three or four marks. And then finally, a 10 marker of explore how this is used in one key sequence in your chosen film. So thinking specifically about cinematography and Rebel Without a Cause, the one thing that I thought would be useful to point out for the identify one example would be the low angle shot of Jim on the stairs when he's arguing with his parents. Now, remember, because it's an identify question, 
you can't just write low angle shot. That's usually where the two marks come into it. So for example, if you answer low angle shot and it's worth two marks, you're probably going to get one mark for that rather than the two. The second mark comes from where you're identifying it to happen in the film. So in this case, low angle shot of Jim arguing with his parents on the stairs. To then go into briefly explain what this example typically suggests. Now, this is something that trips my students up a lot. It's something that I'm sure trips up a number of other students as well. But typically suggests isn't asking you to talk about what that shot means in that film. It's asking you to talk about what that shot means generally or what the element means generally in cinema, in its filmic use, in the way that it is used generally across all genres and across all films. Now, I think the pitfall there is, obviously, you've just mentioned a low-angle shot, Jim arguing with his parents on the stairs, to go in and then describe that. Don't do that. So when it says, briefly explain what this example typically suggests. So I've just mentioned low-angle shot for cinematography. I'm now going to talk about how low-angle shots are used generally. So again, just a brief thing that I've got here. So low-angle shots are usually used to position a character in an imposing way to signify their importance or dominance in a scene. I also discussed this with my attends this week, and we added on a little bit at the end of that, which is just to talk about how it could be subverted. And we used the example from Shrek with Lord Farquaad, where he's tiny, you know, he's supposed to be small stature. That's where the, com the comedic element comes out of it. But sometimes we see him in a low angle shot, and then we see the opposite side, so a sort of really high angle shot, and that's where the comedy builds from there. So they're, they're just different types. And that's usually three or four marks, probably going to be three marks. And your final 10 marker for this one is explore how it's used in one key sequence from your chosen film. So as I say to my students all the time, if a question is worth more than five marks, you need to be identifying the sequence that you're talking about within the first sentence. So I think it's always good to start off with by saying the sequence I'm going to look at is, and then say the sequence. So in this case, the sequence that I'm going to look at is the family argument on the stairs. So specifically here, the low angle, obviously, that we've already mentioned, positions Jim's mum at the top of the stairs, signifying her position at the top of the household. The Dutch tilt, which happens, reflects the imbalance in Jim's life. And the positioning of Jim literally shows him between his two parents. So there's three points there that you could sort of go into and develop a little bit more if it was a cinematography question. So very similar now for sound, and I'm going to do this for editing and mise en scene as well. So apologies if I don't mention the questions again. But for sound, if you're identifying one example from your chosen film, I would say non-diegetic soundtrack or score from the start of the film. Briefly explaining what that means or typically suggesting what that means. A non-diegetic score is typically used to provide a scene with an additional meaning, such as a happy soundtrack enforcing a joyful scene. And then you can go in and give some more examples from there. And then how it is used in one key sequence. Again, I would say the sequence I'm going to look at is the opening sequence. The dramatic score is reflective of the film's context and typical of other films from the era. The dialogue from the team, so Jim, JD, uh, Jim, Judy and Plato, sorry, is confusing and frustrating. And the diegetic siren establishes the location of the police station. So again, there's a couple of things there that you can be getting in. Now, just one thing to mention, I know I said that I was going to do um, structures in just a little bit, but the way that I'm kind of approaching these 10 markers is if you imagine cinematography as a whole sort of branch of you know film form, which it is, if you're going into a 10 marker and you're exploring it, I think it would be useful for you to break it down into three chunks. Now, what I mean by that is with cinematography, 
you could do a paragraph on shots, you could do a paragraph on angles, and you could do a paragraph on movements. Same with sound, you could do a paragraph on the non-diegetic sound, you could do a paragraph on the diegetic sound, so the sound that the characters can hear, and then you could do something on maybe sound bridges or even sound effects. With editing, a little bit more difficult, but we'll get to that now. So with editing, identify one example from your chosen film. Cross-cutting in the chicky chase or the car sequence where Buzz is killed. The typically suggests, so cross-cutting is typically used to show action taking place in two related environments. This creates a relationship between the two shots for the audience. Now, if you're exploring editing in a key sequence, sequence I'm going to look at is the car chase. The cross-cutting used in the sequence creates a spatial relationship or awareness for the audience that Jim and Buzz are racing against each other. The montage S sequence creates a fast-paced atmosphere reminiscent of contemporary car chases. So again, you could develop that point a little bit further. Finally, for film form with mise-en-scene, so identify one example of your chosen film, Jim's red jacket, which is his costume. Um, going into typical suggests, so clothing is often used to reflect a character's personality, but can also reflect the context of a film as historical fashion may be used to further establish a time frame. Going into key sequence, so the sequence I want to talk about is the finale sequence. Jim's jacket reflects the historical context of the film, not just only in colour, so the red skirt and the red jacket, but also in terms of paranoia. Now, that is a very short and brief point. There's much more that you could do, though, going into the red skirt, maybe explaining that a little bit. Don't go too much into it, though. And then also mention the paranoia of the 50s. Jim passing the literal target of the red jacket to Plato uh, foreshadows Plato's death. So, again, you can look at the, the colour connotations of red. And you can still talk about settings and props there as well. So like I mentioned with the cinematography, where you would break it into angles, shots and movements, here with mise-en-scene, naturally you can talk settings, props, costumes, hair and makeup, all that kind of stuff. So there's plenty of things for you to break out into. And that's really going to be useful for you to structure those 10 mark responses. And then finally for genre, if we're looking at genre conventions, now the key genre convention here for Rebel is teenagers, obviously. So I'll briefly explain what teenagers, uh, what genre conventions usually mean. Um, so genre conventions obviously are the kind of ingredients of the film, the kind of the thing that builds the narrative together. And we expect very specific things from very specific films. So teenagers in teenager films are an obvious expected convention. They should be featured at the center of the narrative and the issue should be a key focus of the narrative. Now, you're exploring how genre conventions are used in one key sequence. The sequence I want to talk about is the planetarium sequence. So Buzz and his gang are shown to be typical bullies, mocking adults and acting out. Jim sees this and tries to fit in, mimicking noises only to draw the attention of the group instead. As with the time, teenagers were unpredictable, hence the situation turning into a knife fight. So again, there's a lot of things for you to develop there. So that would be question one. That would deal with question one. Let's go into question two. And this is obviously for us, Ferris Bueller's day off. So cinematography for Ferris. Again, I'm just following a similar pattern here with Rebel. I think they're going to be very similar questions based on the advance notice. Obviously, they could still be slightly different, but I'm, the wording I'm kind of going with is similar. So cinematography, uh, the one example, wide angle establishing shot of the house at the start of the film. Now, this obviously is an establishing shot, sets the scene, may infer details about the characters, such as their wealth or their personality, and it also establishes the film's geography. Now, just to add something there, my year 10s, I did this with yesterday as I record this, and we looked at a different shot from Ferris. We looked at the low-angle shot of Ferris looking up at his parents 
and even the low angle shot where Ferris opens his curtains. Now, I think with a low angle shot, very similar to the one that we mentioned for Rebels, a lot of different things you can mention there. So again, you could mention that one as well. In terms of the key sequence and the um, exploring how it's used in one key sequence. So the sequence I want to look at is the opening scene. Obviously, you get the wide angle of the house. You get the low angle of Ferris opening his blind, like I just mentioned, like the king in his tower. Uh, you get the point of view of Ferris telling his parents he's sick. And then the close-up, direct-to-camera addressing the audience. So there's a lot of different things that you can explore there. Again, looking at angles, looking at shots more specifically. There wasn't much camera movement in that sequence. Going into sound, uh, the diegetic sound of twist and shout during the parade sequence. So obviously we know that diegetic sound is sounds from within the story. Soundtracks typically reflect scenes, parallel sound. Um, and they create additional emotion for the audience. So that would be a typically suggest answer there. Going into your term marker, the sequence I want to look at is the parade sequence. Diegetic soundtrack creates a joyous atmosphere for the audience and matches the scene, parallel sound. Cameron and Sloan's dialogue provides a commentary on the thoughts and feelings at a pivotal stage. So obviously this is the point where Ferris is off on the parade, he's singing Danke Sean and Twist a Shout and all that kind of stuff. And Cameron and Sloan have a bit of a heart-to-heart and they talk about where things are going to go in the future. So you can mention that as well. Editing then for Ferris. So uh, I did tell one example from your chosen film, the montage sequence in the art gallery. So obviously we know with montages for typical suggests, uh, they share a lot of information in a very short amount of time and they usually show character or narrative growth. And if you wanted to, you could stick in a little bit there about how you've seen different montage sequences in different films, for example. Um, going into how this is used in one key sequence from your chosen film, jump cuts to signify time passing, montage S sequence to show as much jovial scenes as possible, and the synchronized soundtrack to insinuate that Ferris is singing. So that's from the parade sequence. Mise-en-scene, Cameron's dad's Ferrari. Props can usually signify character traits, foreshadow the narrative, or be completely inconsequential. Can they, though? Chekhov's gun, for example. Going into your key sequence. So the sequence I want to look at is the restaurant. So this has, um, so the sequence we're talking about here is when he shows up and he says that he's Abe Froman, the sausage king of the Midwest, or the sausage king of Chicago, I should say. Um, and this is specifically looking at the white place and table settings. They are very elegant and clean. The waiters in the suits are very professional and upmarket. And then Cameron, Ferris, and Sloan's attires are purposely casual to make them stand out and to make them juxtapose the expected posh nature of the restaurant. So again, there's more development that you can do with the points there. And then again, very similar to Rebel genre conventions, talking about teenagers again. So again, teenagers and teenage films are perhaps the most obvious convention. They need to be central to the story and their troubles be this main um, element of the narrative. And in terms of this one, I think this is the most interesting, if I'm honest. Key sequence to talk about is Cameron crashing the Ferrari. Because if you're looking at genre conventions, sidekick. Now, the use of Cameron as a sidekick in Ferris Bueller's Day Off subverts the traditional convention of a sidekick. He gets much more of a story than a sidekick usually would do. He is not necessarily a yes man. He's usually kind of Ferris's sort of, and not an alter ego would be the wrong word to use. It's more of a kind of voice of reason of not wanting to do things. The love interest is very passive. Sloane is very passive. She makes Ferris appear more popular, but at the same time, 
when he suggests things like, oh, let's go and get married, she just says, no, nah, I don't want to get married today. Whereas typically the love interest may just go along with things that the protagonist says. And obviously, more typically, our protagonist, Ferris, is very charming, he's very confident, and we aspire to be like him, ultimately. And we want to see him succeed as well, ultimately. So that does it for the Ferris question. I'm going to go into question three. So question three is the comparative analysis. Now, comparative analysis is a huge sort of question, and it's one that realistically you don't want to be dropping any marks on. Now, I'm not saying that you need to be getting 20 marks here, but I think if you can get 18, get 18. It's better than 13. It's five better than 13. And that's going to be really, really crucial for any student that finds themselves on the borderline between, between grades. So if we're looking here again at film form, now the advance notice of elements of film form and genre stretch to this question as well. And I highly doubt touch wood, that this doesn't, you know, backfire in, on, in the face, um, that you'll get a 20-mark question asking you to talk or compare the use of camera work in Ferris and Rebel. So I think generally, if you were to going to get a question about film form, it would be something along the lines of compare the use of film form, the general umbrella term of film form in both films. Now, the way that I would do that in terms of film form, and again, this is a structure which I will mention again, but I will, I'll kind of go through now so that everyone's aware. This is the structure that I tell my students to use for this question. I tell them to start off with a topic sentence. I want them to tell me what they're going to investigate. And I'll give you an example of that in a second. Then I tell them to talk just about Rebel. So give us a paragraph about whatever the element is, how it is used in Rebel. Then tell me how it's used in Ferris. So then you've got the two sides. But then most importantly, and the most important thing with this question, you then need to compare. So you then compare them, you tell me how they are similar, and then you contrast them. You then tell me how they are different. And then ultimately, because I like it, because it ties it all up in a neat package, you give us a conclusion at the end. So in a nutshell, that structure for this 20-mark question should be topic sentence, Rebel, how is it used in Rebel? Ferris, how is it used in Ferris? Compare, contrast, conclude. And if I'm honest, I think you could do that for any of the films in this. So, for example, if you're listening to this, and I mean, you're still here and you're listening to this and you study Singing in the Rain in Greece, then you could do topic sentence, Singing in the Rain, Greece, compare, contrast, conclude. Okay, it works in the same way. So, in terms of film form, so starting with a topic sentence, this is the example that I'm going to give you. In Rebel Without a Cause, film form creates a... Un, a say, oh, start again, Adam. We'll, we'll get through it. In Rebel Without a Cause, film form creates a sense of unease, paranoia, and frustration. In Ferris Bueller's Day Off, film form creates an atmosphere of joy and materialism. Now, in the same way for the 10 marker, when you move into talking about Rebel, I think it's very advantageous for you to mention the sequence that you're going to talk about. So... I'm going to, um, so you could say something like, for Rebel Without a Cause, I'm going to look at the family argument sequence, for example. There is a 180 degree point of view rotation, which symbolizes Jim's life turning upside down. There is a Dutch tilt on the stairs to signify the imbalance in Jim's life. And there are numerous camera shots positioning Jim in between his parents. Now, what that does is it references the topic sentence, it references 
that I've started this essay or I've started this answer by saying it's unease, it's paranoia and it's frustration. And now what I'm doing here is I'm saying how it's unease, paranoia and frustration. It's unease because of the degree, the 180 degree point of view turning around, Jim's life flipping upside down. It's unease because of the Dutch tilt. It's paranoia and frustration because of him being literally seen positioned between his parents. How does Ferris do it? So Ferris creates an atmosphere of joy and materialism. So again, the sequence I want to talk about Ferris is the parade sequence. Montage sequences show the public joy in Chicago. Diegetic sound of Ferris singing symbolizes celebration. The juxtaposition of the professional and casual wear on civilians shows aspects of everyday life. Okay, very simple points just to kind of expand there. Comparison. So both films use cinematography to frame the protagonist in the center of the frame. Both use dialogue to convey the inner thoughts of main characters as opposed to voiceovers or narration. Contrast, Rebel has more conventional camera shots due to when it was made, whereas Ferris has adapted more portable cameras as technology developed. Ferris adopts much wider shots to show the scale of celebration and the vastness, while Rebel is much more tightly shot with a focus on emotion and drama. Now, let's go into genre, which, if I'm honest, I think we're more likely to get for this question. So, genre conventions. In Rebel Without a Cause, genre conventions are best explored through the use of characters. So, genre conventions. In Rebel Without a Cause, genre conventions are best explored through the characters of Jim and Judy. In Ferris Bueller's Day Off, genre conventions are best explored through the characters of Cameron and Sloan. So, for Rebel, I'm going to talk about the, ma the mansion sequence. Judy falls into the arms of Jim after Buzzy's death like the stereotypical damsel in distress. Genre convention. Jim is the clear leader, directing both the narrative and where his friends go. Ferris, the sequence I want to talk about is the parade. Cameron questions his life and his decisions. He's the sidekick that argues back, which makes him unconventional. Sloan refuses Ferris's suggestions, showing that she's capable of making her own mind up. Again, unconventional. Comparison. Both films feature a male protagonist, a love interest, and a sidekick. Both films feature a school setting and use rebellion as a theme or issue. Both films reflect the societal opinion of teenagers at the time of the production. Contrast. Rebel vilifies the adults, making Jim's relationship with his parents seem aggressive, while Ferris seems to have a good yet manipulative relationship with his parents. Ferris is very confident in knowing what he wants, while Jim is very introspective and questions everything. Now, next one. Contexts. So again, if I'm honest, this occurred to me this morning as I was getting ready to go into work that we'd not really spoke about contexts and how obviously, you know, I'm speaking directly to my class now. I've taught you the context. We looked at fibrophobia, so we looked at the fear of youth and all that kind of stuff. Now, contexts, the omission of context in the advance notice kind of worried me because I thought surely context is going to come up somewhere. So I'm kind of including this as a, as a sort of catch-all in, in the hope that it might pop up here. So the context or the time in which they are set. So in Rebel Without a Cause, context is reflected through the mise-en-scene of Jim's house and through his family dynamic. In Ferris Bueller's Day Off, context is reflected through the mise-en-scene in the opening scene and the actions during the parade sequence. So the sequence I want to use for Rebel is the family argument. Jim's house is decorated with muted colours typical of the traditional 50s household. His family dynamic subverts the typical 50s household as his mother is the most dominant while his father is emasculated. For Ferris, I want to talk about the parade sequence and the opening sequence. 
So in the opening sequence, Ferris's room is filled with goods such as computers, hi-fi stereo systems, and his family own three cars. Ferris's actions during the parade sequence reflect the freedom and the celebratory mood felt through America uh, in the 1980s after they, quote-unquote, won the Cold War. Comparatively, both films reflect the time in which they are set through mise-en-scene and certain aspects of their narratives. Both films could be seen as celebrations as Ferris was reflecting the celebratory nature at the time, while Rebel was trying to shine a light on a much maligned area of society being teenagers. The contrast, Rebel is inherently a social commentary allowing older audiences to relate to the plight, of, plight on society at the time, teenagers, while Ferris aims to be more jovial look at youth at the time, allowing older audiences to live vicariously through Ferris and reminisce on their school days. So let's look at the more issue. In Rebel Without a Cause, Rebellion is shown through the main character of Jim. In Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Rebellion is shown through the main character of Ferris. In the opening sequence for Rebel, Rebellion is shown through the actions and the consequences of the three main characters. All are arrested, all pushed back against adults and parents and act out. Now you can develop that more by explaining that in more detail. Ferris, the opening sequence once again. Ferris's rebellion is shown through the opening scene as he feigns his illness and proceeds to address the audience detailing his plans to rebel by skipping school. Comparatively, the main focus of rebellion in both films is how the main characters and their friends rebel against their parents. Cameron and Plato's parents are neglectful, resulting in their emotional rebellion too. Contrastly, or contrastingly, I should say, Jim's rebellion is a frustrated response to his parents' incapability to direct him in life. Ferris's rebellion is more of a negative reflection on himself as he's proving how he can manipulate his loving parents. Jim's rebellion helps create a sense of empathy for him, while Ferris's rebellion positions the audience to cheer for him, slash hope he succeeds. And then finally, one that I thought was interesting to look at, I don't know whether or not you'd get a question on this, but looking at the development of the genre, because obviously this is the US comparative study. We're essentially looking at two films here from very different time periods and looking at how the genre is developed. So I wondered if you might actually at some point or one year get a question specifically looking at how the genre has developed. So in Rebel, the development of the teenage genre is best shown through the historic use of melodrama and its serious tone. In Ferris, the development of the teenage genre is best shown through the film's jovial narrative and its more comedic script. Opening sequence for Rebel. Teenagers have been arrested for being drunk and disorderly, wandering the streets, and for killing puppies. All serious crimes typically committed by older people. Domestic dysfunction is clear from the outset. Opening sequence for Ferris. Ferris breaks the fourth wall and addresses the camera, effectively winking at the audience, bringing them into his rebellion. Ferris shows his calm demeanour through his dialogue and general body language. Comparatively, both films put the troubles of teenagers at the heart of their narratives. Both films have significant authoritative presence in the form of adults, although Rebel is much more negative representation of them. Contrastingly, Ferris is a much more jovial take on the issues of teenagers, with school being the main source of their angst, while Rebel works to tackle much more serious issues, such as death and responsibility. Rebel tries to empathise with the plight of teenagers at the time, while Ferris is a much more escapist tale of perceived teenage interests. Whew. So that was a lot to go through the comparison. And again, good thing with the podcast, you can rewind and all that kind of stuff. Um, so let's look at the timeline for a second then. So specifically, he says, well, he just gets a different PowerPoint up. Um, 
the timeline is obviously now made up of 10 points and you're going to get short answer questions about those 10 points. And again, it, it's, it's negative to say, but I think sometimes people refer to it as a bit of an afterthought because it's only worth five marks and all that kind of stuff. Let's not go down that route. So let's just kind of go through it quickly here and recap it. So we start off in 1895 with the first moving images by the Lumiere brothers. You then get 1895 to 1927, which is the development of silent cinema, specifically going from short films to full-length feature films. In the 1920s, you get vertically integrated Hollywood. So you get your big five, Warner Brothers, Fox, MGM, RKO and Paramount, and your little three, United Artists, Columbia and Universal. 1927, the first film with a synchronized soundtrack, The Jazz Singer, starring Al Jolson and directed by Alan Crossland. 1935, the first three-strip technical film, Becky Sharp, directed by Ruben Mamoulian. 1948, the Paramount Court case prevents studios from being vertically integrated and leads to a more independent Hollywood studio system. The 1950s, the rise of 3D and widescreen to combat, no, flip that. 1950s, so the introduction of 3D and widescreen to combat the rise of uh, TVs in people's homes. The late 1950s, so this is lightweight, portable, handheld cameras used by French new wave filmmakers and documentary filmmakers. In the 1970s, Garrett Brown invented the Steadicam in 1975. And then 1990s onwards is the more widespread use of CGI. And finally, to go through the specialist writing. So I've said this to my students quite a bit, that I think the specialist writing question sometimes is usually um, worded in a way where it's about how far do you agree, how far do you disagree, how much did it deepen your understanding. Now, obviously, there are three options for specialist writing. I am just going to go, I mean, I am just going to focus on option C for the time being uh, for, this, for this little episode that I'm doing. So option C for Whiplash is Tom Beasley's Men and Masculinity. Now, I've interviewed Tom about the article. Um, you can find it on the YouTube channel or you can find it on the podcast feed and all that kind of stuff where we talk very much in depth about it. But this is essentially my kind of abridged way of answering this. So to give you an introduction, in Beasley's article, he raises valid points that women, specifically, specifically Nicole, are underwritten in the film. The main overarching point of the article is that the film plays out more like a battle of and for masculinity between student Andrew and, his Andrew and his teacher or idol Fletcher. The point is supported in the film by, and then this is where you start bringing in some elements of film form and stuff. So you don't have to mention key quotes here. One thing actually you do need to mention is say which one you're doing. So do option C, whiplash men and masculinity. Write that down first. So you don't have to mention the key points. You don't have to, uh, no, you should mention the key points. You don't have to mention the key quotes. So you don't have to actually memorize a quote here. But a quote that from Beezer's article is masculinity becomes a performance and competition between two figures battling to out alpha the other. Now, I think that's best attributed to the lighting in the finale sequence. So all bands are equal, all the band are equals during the performances as the spotlight or motivated lighting shines on all of them. This changes after Fletcher's sabotage as the spotlight remains on him and Andrew is encased in darkness. This then reverses after Andrew takes control of the band from Fletcher during his show of defiance. Lighting equals control. Second point. 
even Fletcher's appearance is, is one of masculine performance. He is stripped down in terms of his shaven head and his plain black clothing costume. Fletcher is seen in his usual black plain attire. Andrew joins the band, mimicking his attire as if it's the right or only thing to do. Andrew is blindly following his idol, even his choice of clothing. Andrew has shed his former skin and become Fletcher. The other members of the band are wearing white. Finally, Andrew finally succeeds in earning the respect of Fletcher by beating him in his own game, high angle and low angles. Standard and typical use of high angle and low angle shots in the finale sequence, high angles to show early dominance of Fletcher looking down on Andrew, low angles to show Andrew's weakness and submissive nature towards Fletcher. As they achieve mutual respect with each other, the angles balance out. Conclusion, the final sequence, the finale sequence, focuses on how masculine conflicts can abruptly turn into magic. The two men go from full-blooded war to mutual respect in the space of a single scene. Now, the little flourishes that you would need to put on that are, if the question's asking you whether or not you agree or you disagree, you need to state whether you agree or you disagree. Now, again, my advice is to fundamentally say that you agree. I think it's going to be easier for you to say that you agree with the points that Tom makes, because ultimately, while I agree with the points that Tom makes, I think it's more difficult to say that Whiplash isn't a film about masculinity and it isn't a film that has an underwritten female character because fundamentally it is those things. So I think you're going to do yourself much, much more of a favour by agreeing with them. Now, I'm just going to go through the structures that I mentioned before. <clears throat> so when it comes to the three markers for Rebel and Ferris and stuff like that, I think the best way to do it is to start off by defining the element so, for example, low-angle shots of position from below looking up at a character. Then secondly, I would say how it's used generally. So, low-angles are usually used to show a character in an intimidating way or to show an inferior character from an alternative position. And then, as your kind of final point, to try and make sure that you get all three marks, how may it be used in other genres or how a non-typical subverted version looks. A subverted use of the low-angle may be used for comedic effects to show a villain initially imposing from a different angle, signifying their weakness. I kind of alluded this for the 10 marker earlier. So I think you need to start off by identifying a key sequence. And the sequence I want to refer to is the family argument of stirs. Refer back to the point that you made for question A. So talk about your low angles again. Then introduce another example. So this is where you might bring in movement. Explain the movement. Explain how it's used in a sequence. And then bring in another use so again you could do the dutch tilt there or you could do different camera shots and again you would explain that there so it's identify key sequence go back to your answer a and establish it a little bit more elaborate on it a little bit more introduce another element explain the element introduce another element explain the element i think that you should be good there um and then as i mentioned for the 20 marker i would do topic sentence in in our case rebel ferris compare contrast conclude so Topic sentence, film one, film two, compare, contrast, conclude. Okay. That's pretty much it. That's pretty much all that I'm going to go through. Now, obviously, for my students, you guys are going to listen to this. You've got the paper copies of that and all that kind of stuff. As we record this, we're two weeks away from the exam. Um, if you're not one of my students, if you're a teacher um, and there's anything that I can help with, by all means, get in touch. You can find me on Twitter at Adam Farrand and at Farrandon Film, um, and I'll be in, I'm in the Facebook group as well, um, so by all means, try and find me there, but hopefully this is helpful, hopefully this is something that you can listen to on the morning of the week before, whatever, it can just add something to your revision as a little bit of a kind of 
listening piece of revision rather than you actively having to sort of do something. Um, and yeah, ultimately, I hope it was helpful. I'm going to do another one for paper two and I'll release that after paper one has finished. Um, in the meantime, guys, you can help support Farron and Film by following us on Twitter at Adam Farron and at Farron and Film. Going over to our sponsor, Offworld Tees, and using the code Farron, that's F A W R A N D for 15% off your order. Stay safe, look after each other, revise, and I will see you next time.